Hi, I'm Lone Candle. I'm here to talk about workers paying their fair share of taxes while the wealthy often get away with paying nothing on massive amounts of income. And I'm going to tell you how to fix it. The main way the U.S. federal government is funded is by income taxes. About 93% of federal revenue is from the individual income tax, Social Security and Medicare taxes, and the corporate income tax. We all pay our fair share by giving a piece of our yearly earnings to the government. For the individual income tax, income above certain amounts is taxed at higher rates. This is fair. While it's true that from a straight count of dollars paid per person, this means wealthier people will pay far, far more in taxes than others. It's fair for two reasons. One practical, and the other because of the actual impact of the tax. First, the practical reason. We tax the wealthy more because that's where the money is. Someone barely scraping by doesn't have the funds to pay for our government, while the great earners do. Second, when it comes to fairness, what matters more is not the number of dollars taken, but how taking those dollars actually impacts the person's life. Taking a small amount of money from a poor person could mean skipping dinner. Taking a moderate amount from someone in the lower middle class could mean waiting another year for that big vacation. Taking large amounts from someone very well off may not affect their lives in the least. Their basics and a plethora of luxuries are easily covered even after a heavy tax. So if the government needs money, it's better to lean more into taking the ample income of the wealthy than taking from those with more modest incomes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not for soaking the rich or tearing them down or class warfare or anything like that. Our society through our government has racked up obligations. So we have to find a way to pay for them. And I want to do so in a way that does the least amount of damage to people's lives. I want the wealthy to remain wealthy. And I want people who have high incomes to continue making lots of money. But for the practical needs of society, a fair amount does need to be taken in tax. Some may say that this is all wrong because the government should be much smaller and should spend way less, and therefore not need the taxes in the first place. Such an argument is irrelevant to today's topic. Unless one is arguing for true anarchy with no government, then the government will need funding, and will still want to get that funding in a way that is fair and practical, meaning taking substantially more from the wealthy compared to the less well-off. A smaller government just means we'll take less from everyone, but doesn't change that the wealthy need to pay more compared to the less well-off. A smaller government could change the balance of how people pay because we'd need so much less, but that wouldn't defend the flaws in the current system that I'm about to discuss. Despite the fact that the regular income tax is progressive, meaning higher rates for more income, our tax system is still unfair and allows the wealthy to avoid lots of taxes on income. In this piece, I will focus on income from capital gains. 
If a janitor works for two weeks and then receives a paycheck, that's income. If a CEO works, then receives a paycheck, that's income. If my rich aunt gives me a $40,000 gift, that's income. If I inherit $40 million from my father, that's income. If I invest in property, stocks, bonds, art, or some other investment, and that investment has a return, that's income. If I run a business and make a profit, that's income. With labor income, there are too many deductions, but still, labor income is taxed pretty well. Business profits reported as individual income are taxed pretty well. And corporate profits are also taxed, although corporations certainly play games to reduce how much they pay. Income from investments, however, are often not taxed at all. The wealthier someone is, the more income from investments they tend to have, so such loopholes are primarily taken advantage of by the wealthy. Someone barely getting by may not have any money to invest. A standard middle-class household will have only modest investments. The very wealthy, on the other hand, have massive investments and get vast incomes and wealth growth from the gains on their assets. Thus, although we try to set up a fair income tax system where the wealthy pay more through capital gains, the wealthy avoid paying taxes on most of their income. And the result is more debt, more inflation, and the rest of us shouldering a higher share of the tax bill. Often, the wealthy actually pay a lower tax rate than everyone else because so much of their income is from capital gains and much of that is not taxed. The rates for long-term capital gains are 0, 15, and 20%. The top end of these rates is far lower than the top income tax rate of 37%. It is even lower than the middle-class tax brackets of 22 and 24%. Although this may seem unfair, I don't believe the lower rates are an issue for three reasons. The positive incentives of lower taxes on investment, double taxation, and avoidance. Economic theory and evidence largely support that more investment is good for an economy as a whole. When someone saves more, they don't just earn a return for themselves, but that money is put to productive potential, which produces more economic output and jobs for everyone. The higher we tax this, the more we discourage economic investment. So, it may be best for everyone to have a relatively lower rate on capital gains. The second justification for the lower rate is double taxation. At least when it comes to stocks, this income can be seen as already taxed by the corporate income tax. There's a debate about whether or not the taxation of dividends and capital gains is double taxation. It's not a black and white issue. In one sense, they are not double taxed, and in one sense, they are. They are double taxed in that when you buy stock, you are buying a piece of a company. You are one of the many owners of that corporation's. You, through the corporation that you partially own, pay taxes on the corporation's profits through the corporate income tax. Then, when you receive a dividend or sell the stock for a profit, you pay another tax. The stock grew in value because the corporation's profits grew, or at least because the expectations of its future profits grew, which are partially caused by previous profit growth. That growth was already taxed by the corporate tax. So when you have to pay taxes again as a capital gain, that profit is being double taxed. 
In this sense, taxing capital gains and dividends is double taxation. However, the corporation is its own legal entity, and the stockholder is a separate legal entity. When the corporation makes a profit, that is an income for the corporation. Then when the stockholder receives a dividend or sells for capital gain, that is a separate income for a separate entity. So both incomes should be taxed. Furthermore, a return on one's investment is not the exact same as a corporation's profits. There isn't a fact of the matter on whether this is double taxation, but there's enough sense to the stockholders having to pay tax twice on their corporation's income and on their income from the corporation's dividend payouts and capital gains that a lower capital gains rate can act as a compromise between the idea of this being double taxation versus it not being double taxation. A third reason for lower capital gains tax rates compared to labor tax rates is that studies tend to find capital income more responsive to taxation than labor income, meaning taxes on capital gains further incentivize avoidance behavior that hurt the economy by channeling economic activity into less productive activities. Lower taxes on capital gains may reduce avoidance behavior more than lower taxes on labor income would. The issue with capital gains taxes isn't the lower rate, but that many people don't pay them at all. A capital gains tax is only applied when the item is sold. The wealthy can avoid this tax by never selling the asset. If they need money, they can use other income sources or take loans using the stock as collateral. Loans are not taxed, and the interest rate on the loans is lower than the cost of a tax. So, even without selling, the wealthy can spend their capital gains like its regular income, but don't have to pay taxes on it. At death, those assets are transferred to heirs, and the now deceased never paid a tax. You would think that the money is then paid through an estate tax or when the heirs sell the assets, but this is not the case. First, the estate tax has a very high starting threshold, so much wealth is sheltered before even reaching the tax level. And second, there are tools like trusts that the wealthy use to legally protect their wealth from being taxed. Their wealth goes from the trusts to their heirs without being taxed. The heirs can then also never sell the assets and therefore never pay a capital gains tax. However, even if they did sell the assets, they still would not pay a tax on the capital gains. The United States uses a stepped-up basis to determine what counts as a gain. When we decide how much someone gained from owning an asset, we take how much they sold it for minus how much they paid for it. The initial cost of the asset is called the cost basis. You'd think that when the heir sells inherited assets, they would use the original cost for the cost basis. But thanks to stepped up, their cost basis for selling is the value of the asset when they inherited it. So, if a father buys an asset for $1, then it grows to $100 before he dies, and the son inherits this $100 asset and sells it immediately, 
The son pays no tax on the gains because the cost basis for his sale is the $100 value that he inherited it at. So, the father didn't pay taxes on this income because he kept the asset until death. And the son doesn't pay tax because of stepped-up basis. If the father was able to avoid the estate tax, then no tax revenue was ever gained on this income. And arguably, even if an estate tax was paid, that is tax revenue from the wealth of the estate, not an income tax. So the tax on the income was still avoided. For the wealthy that have massive incomes from capital gains, much of this income is not taxed, essentially making their capital gains tax rate on these assets 0%. Compare this to a regular working person who has to pay the regular income taxes. The people who taxes hurt the most, those in the middle and lower classes, pay their fair share, while the wealthy escape tax-free on much of their income. It's terribly unfair and worsens the national debt. Only taxing capital gains when they are sold creates bad incentives that distort the economy. Because selling an asset causes a tax, and because one can avoid this tax altogether by holding the asset until death, one has the incentive to never sell assets if they don't need to. This lock-in effect means people may hold underperforming assets and not move their money to better places for the sake of avoiding the tax. If not for this, more money would be in better investments that could produce more good for society. Even if one does sell eventually, because gains can compound untaxed if they wait to sell, one makes more money by holding the asset as long as possible, even if there are assets available with better returns for the same risk. We don't have to live with this unfair system. There are ways to tax the wealthy fairly. Four ideas are Market-to-market taxation, a wealth tax, ending stepped-up basis, and capturing this tax revenue at death. Market-to-market taxation, sometimes called accrual taxation, is taxing capital gains every year whether or not they are sold. This would directly fix the problem by having people owe taxes on their gains and not waiting for a sale to apply the tax. With mark-to-market, the lock-in effect is eliminated because the tax is implemented every year, so holding onto the asset doesn't allow the gains to compound tax-free. This ends the incentive for people to keep money in current assets even if it would be better to make a change. Batchelder and Kamen used the survey of consumer finance data to estimate that a mark-to-market tax on marketable assets only, and only applied to the top 1% of households, would bring in $1.7 over 10 years, assuming 15% avoidance. Accrual taxation is not unprecedented. Every year, stockbrokers include unrealized gains as taxable income. Another precedent is straddles, which are taxed mark-to-market. There's also a retrospective tax on some passive income earned by foreign corporations that U.S. residents hold. Additionally, debt instruments have an effective accrual tax by way of the original issue discount rules. 
a mark-to-market tax would be counter-cyclical, automatically stabilizing the economy by taking in less during economic downturns. It's tempting to see mark-to-market taxation as the best solution because it most directly targets the problem. However, such taxation has challenges. The first is liquidity issues. When one is taxed on a sale, he easily has money to pay the tax because he can use the proceeds from the sale to pay what's owed. However, if one has to pay the tax without selling, where does the money come from? People may be forced to sell assets just to pay the tax. For those with money, finding funds won't be a problem. Selling assets is one option, so are loans that wealthy people can easily get, or using other sources of income. None of this would be so easy for those of less means. Most mark-to-market proposals solve this by only applying the tax on those with a high amount of income or wealth in the first place. This is fair because the need for the tax is to get the wealthy to pay their fair share, so applying it to just the wealthy directly solves the problem. The income threshold could be a lifetime exemption rather than based on yearly gains. So, when one reaches a certain amount of lifetime gains, gains above that are taxed. Another option is to allow the tax to be paid over time. This could apply to all taxpayers or just those whose assets mostly consist of something undesirable to sell just for the sake of taxes, like a small business or a living home. Another solution is to have the tax structured as an interest payment rather than an actual tax that is due every year. So, instead of genuine mark-to-market taxation, one accumulates interest owed to the government for each year the asset is not sold. When it is sold, the taxpayer will have the money to pay the tax, including interest, from the sales proceeds. Such plans are usually combined with death rules to counteract that the asset could be held till death. Other proposals leave this as an option. The taxpayer can pay a mark-to-market tax now or have to pay interest eventually when the asset is sold. A problem with a delayed payment is that after much delay, a huge tax bill will be owed, giving the taxpayer large incentives to avoid paying the tax at all, including lobbying to get rid of the tax or get a pass on the tax. If the accrual tax causes businesses to take money away from investing in the business in order to pay the tax, This could hurt the economy more generally. A problem with forcing people to sell in order to pay the tax is this could lower the overall value of stocks. While most stocks are owned by the wealthy, stocks are still an important part of middle-class savings and investments, and forcing people to sell stocks in order to pay the tax could hurt everyone's investments by making stocks less valuable. Hopefully this will be mitigated by the wealthy having access to other funding sources to pay the tax. A second issue is valuation. In order to know how much of a gain there was, we must know the value of the asset. When one sells the asset, there is no valuation issue because the value is the price it was sold for. However, with mark-to-market taxation, there is no sale. For publicly traded assets like stocks, the value of these assets is well known and there are no valuation issues. However, other assets have no true valuation until sold. Real estate is an issue, although local and state governments already deal with this when they levy a property tax. 
Other less commonly sold assets would be more difficult. Investing in rare works of art is relatively common among the wealthy, but valuing varying artworks is difficult. Private businesses also cause problems. One could only apply the tax to market-traded assets, which already have a clear value, but this distorts the economy and encourages investment in non-market-traded assets. Not only does this not put money where it would be most useful, it hurts the lower classes which can't as easily invest in things like rare art. Also, there may be ways to game the system by investing in mark-to-market assets indirectly in such a way that allows one to gain income from them without paying the tax. If the tax includes derivatives that are based on publicly traded assets, then valuing them may be difficult. Additionally, if only publicly traded assets are taxed on mark-to-market, then this would incentivize firms to stay private longer. Alternatively, we could apply mark-to-market on market-traded assets and use retrospective taxation on others, which means interest that builds and becomes due on realization. Kamen and Batchelder estimate that this would bring in an additional $400 billion on top of their previously mentioned estimate that did not include non-market assets. Or, all capital gains taxes could apply retrospective taxation. This wouldn't really be mark-to-market, but would have similar effects. Here, taxes only apply at realization, but there's less lock-in because one has to pay interest for holding the asset. The goal would be to make the effective tax rate constant, no matter how long someone holds the asset. The statuary rate would rise the longer the holding period. Such a system eliminates valuation issues because the tax is only applied when an asset is sold. It also removes liquidity issues. Another option is to base the tax of non-market traded assets on simple rules, like the cost of purchase plus a predetermined adjustment that rises at a set yearly rate. Proposals that suggest accrual taxation on publicly traded assets, but a retrospective interest on other assets, usually pair this with a retrospective interest tax on gifts, bequests, and donations to charity, so that this retrospective tax can't be avoided. Any system that uses a retrospective tax on some taxes and accrual on others will leave an opportunity for some tax avoidance. There's no way that interest on the retrospective tax will have the exact equal tax as the real accrual tax. Related to the valuation issue is additional bureaucracy needed to manage the mark-to-market tax. For a mark-to-market tax, government workers may have to estimate a value for every asset that every potential taxpayer owns every year. That's a large and difficult task. At the very least, the IRS will need to audit taxpayers' reports on their unrealized gains. Fortunately, investors themselves may not need to deal with much of the complexity related to publicly traded assets thanks to automated reporting by financial institutions. But other assets may require more work on part of the taxpayer. The complexity wouldn't be limited to the wealthy, because to implement the tax, everyone would need to know what their gains are to determine if they are under the threshold. Although most taxpayers will know without researching that they have not made enough gains. Another complication is determining the base to which the tax should apply. 
determining which assets are included under mark-to-market and which are not may be quite complicated and gameable. What exactly is a publicly traded asset may be fairly easy to define with an abstract definition, but determining which assets are considered publicly traded and which are not will require a set of rules. Current law already does not have a single and universal definition of public trading. Rules will have to be determined that decide whether a non-publicly traded instrument is a substitute for a publicly traded one used to avoid taxes. This can be complicated as people think of smart ways to avoid taxes based on how the government defines different classifications. Also, if there is uncertainty as to how a particular investment may be classified, this could dissuade investment in those areas. Ultimately, a partial mark-to-market approach would require complex rules that are hard to understand and comply with. Places where the government already does this are quite complex. The government will have trouble policing taxpayer valuations. Taxpayers have more information about their investments. They could systematically undervalue assets. The government already has trouble with the mark-to-market taxation on security dealers. Valuing art will also require a bureaucracy to make sure people value appropriately. The wealthy will have to hire appraisers to appraise their art, and the IRS will have to audit to check these appraisals. The IRS is already doing this for the estate tax, so mark-to-market would just require evaluations to be done more often, which has costs and consequences. Over the years, people have been constantly gaming the system to time losses and gains, and the government responds by closing loopholes. This has resulted in a mess of complicated rules that impose a burden on both taxpayers and the IRS. These could be simplified in mark-to-market, mitigating the bureaucratic and compliance burdens that mark-to-market puts on society. An awkwardness under accrual is that those below the exemption rate may avoid accrual taxes, but still would be liable for realization taxes. Whatever rules the government comes up with, Taxpayers will pay lots of money to very smart people to try to game the rules, creating an expensive, never-ending war between the IRS and wealthy taxpayers. What about when assets lose value? This adds another aspect to manage. Most plans propose some sort of tax credit that can be used to deduct from other incomes or apply in the future toward future capital gains. Another option is for a portion of gains and losses to count each year which would basically be a kind of income averaging. Another problem with mark-to-market taxation is potentially bad incentives it provides for economic actors. I'm afraid mark-to-market would slow stock market growth by sending more wealthy dollars elsewhere. This is bad for middle-income people. Middle-income people have trouble investing in more complicated ways. They need the stock market. If we make the stock market a worse investment because wealthy dollars are more likely to go elsewhere, the middle class will gain a worse return because the ways they can invest, specifically the stock market, will be worse investments. Even if the tax was applied to all assets, non-public assets may be more gameable than publicly traded assets and therefore attract more wealthy dollars under mark-to-market. An issue with retrospective taxation is that, even with interest, If the invested gains are expected to earn more than the government's charged interest, then there is still an incentive to defer the payment of the tax and to defer selling for tax purposes. 
If the interest rate is too high, this is also a problem because then assets will be sold too early just to lower the tax bill. Most taxes are distortionary to some extent, but the distortions of a capital gains tax is limited by the extent that people with returns in excess of normal returns have those excess returns due to chance events, variables outside of the individual's control, market power, or inside information. These can be seen as economic rents and taxed with no distortion. If the excess gains are due to productive economic activity, then this creates a distortion and disincentivizes productive economic activity. Because a fair amount of stock market growth is due to productive activity, greater taxes on this activity could produce less of such beneficial economic actions. There can be lots of year-to-year fluctuation in wealth growth. 20% growth in a year is not uncommon, and a capital gains tax on this is a large tax bill, much higher than a wealth tax would be. If a successful entrepreneur is being taxed in this way, then for his success, he is heavily taxed. Mark-to-market taxes would be on all of a citizen's gains, whether those gains are in country or not, and all citizens, no matter where they live. So, hiding profits in tax havens would be difficult. There is no country that taxes all assets using mark-to-market, so the United States would be trailblazing a new path, and there would be unexpected challenges. To conclude on mark-to-market taxation, mark-to-market taxation would most directly target the problem of the wealthy avoiding taxes on capital gains. The biggest objections around liquidity and valuation have solutions to them. It could be done and is not a horrible idea. But the yearly bureaucratic complication of tracking, valuating, and auditing unrealized capital gains combined with the added incentives for people to hide their wealth from such annual takings weakens the accrual tax option. There's no way interest rates on or valuations of non-publicly traded assets will amount to an equal tax compared to -to mark-to-market taxes on publicly traded investments. This will create a distortion, and if the distortion leads to the wealthy focusing on private investments where they can game the system and pay less tax, this will leave the regular person's investment options less profitable, hurting people's savings and retirements. I don't think a mark-to-market tax, also called an accrual tax, is the best option. Instead of taxing income, we could tax a percentage of people's wealth each year. This would mitigate the need to tax capital gains because all such gains add to one's wealth and we can get the money owed through a tax on wealth. Like mark-to-market, Most wealth tax proposals only apply to those with high amounts of wealth, so this is just a tax on the wealthy. A wealth tax could not be easily avoided by tax havens because the tax would target citizens no matter where they live or where their wealth is located. An advantage of a wealth tax is that many countries have implemented one, so we can learn from their experience. Another advantage is that Wealth as a category may be an independent source of well-offness. Wealth may independently provide insurance, access to information, or political influence, 
if a goal is to fairly and progressively meet the funding needs of government by taxing the better off more than the worse off, and if wealth provides advantages in well-offness separate from income and how much one consumes, then a wealth tax can make the tax system more progressive and well-rounded. By wealth, the current system is regressive. Says and Zuckman estimated that the bottom 99% in wealth pay 7.2% of their wealth in federal, state, and local taxes. The top 0.1% only pay 3.2%. A wealth tax would increase tax progressivity by wealth more than an accrual tax. Wealth transfer taxes like estate taxes do tax wealth, but they have a large exemption and many loopholes. Also, because estate taxes only happen once in a lifetime, they are easier to plan for, so may be easier to avoid with various avoidance strategies. Executing these strategies every year would be more difficult and costly. It has been argued that an advantage of a wealth tax over an accrual or capital gains tax is that under a wealth tax, the tax burden is more focused on unproductive uses of capital, so the wealth tax reallocates capital to more productive uses. This would mean a wealth tax increases productivity. With a wealth tax, because total wealth is taxed each year, the wealthy have an incentive to use it or lose it, so they would want to invest in productive investments or else their wealth would be taxed away. Additionally, a wealth tax allows entrepreneurs with high returns to keep more of their money, and they may continue putting it to productive uses. With capital gains taxes, we are essentially taking money from productive uses. Often, the reason there's a gain is because the money was used in a way that produced profits. Taxation that leans more on high returns discourages the productive use of capital and takes money away from those who use it productively. With a wealth tax, the burden doesn't fall especially on those who productively use capital. A wealth tax can not only make up for the failure to tax unrealized capital gains, but the wealthy's ability to avoid other types of taxes. Compared to an accrual tax, a wealth tax can more easily tax assets with difficult-to-measure returns, but an accrual tax has an advantage when returns are easier to tax than assets. A wealth tax would mitigate the problem of the wealthy avoiding taxes on capital gain income. However, wealth taxes have problems. Like Mark to Market, when you tax stocks of wealth, that doesn't mean people have the money available to pay the tax. However, because this is a tax on the wealthy, they will have the means to sell assets, take loans, or use alternative income to pay the tax. Any small business worth that much is unlikely to really be a small business and would have the capability to gain the money without selling off parts of the business. But if this was an issue, exceptions or payment over time could be allowed. Also, a taxpayer could average their wealth over several years to avoid the situation where one's wealth temporarily surpasses the threshold. Also like mark to market a wealth tax will require determining a valuation for assets every year. The IRS already determines the value of businesses and other non-market assets. They do this for estate and gift taxes as well as for charity deductions. Secondary markets value some businesses and values are determined for mergers and acquisitions, venture capital funding, and share issuing. Divorces, bankruptcies, and obtaining loans or insurance require asset valuing. Those assets include smaller businesses and art. 
a wealth tax would just require more widespread and frequent valuations. For smaller businesses without information in the financial industry, the Internal Revenue Code already has a section that values private businesses for taxing stock options or valuing IRAs. The IRS is also already taking in information on private businesses' assets and profits for corporate and business income taxes. Other countries value non-market businesses, so businesses not publicly traded have been valued, and in the U.S., much of the needed information is already gathered. Thus, the groundwork for valuing them is laid. However, there are so many different small business circumstances, it may be difficult to evaluate them equally and fairly. If not, some will be taxed too little and others too much, likely resulting in litigation. There are not that many works of arts used for investment. They're often insured, which creates a valuation. Systematic catalogs of art and collectibles exist and can be utilized. So can professional appraisers. Intangible assets are hard to evaluate. Their returns are more easily measured than their stock. For example, intellectual property and goodwill. The wealthy may be better able to devalue their wealth in private businesses, which could distort the market in favor of such businesses potentially resulting in less market transparency and liquidity. And, if this lowers the overall value of publicly traded investment tools, this could hurt the investments of regular people who have tougher access to non-public investment options. To simplify valuing private businesses, we could use rules of thumb, like book value of assets plus a multiple of profits or sales. Industry-specific formulas could be applied. The rules of thumbs could be required or offered as a backstop unless a taxpayer can prove a different value. Requiring use of formulas would limit gaming, but would put a lot of weight on those formulas almost always being helpful, and self-interested lobbying could game the formulas through the legislative process to essentially avoid taxes. Taxing wealth gives the incentive for people to move their wealth overseas or to hide it in some other way. The United States can tax wealth of citizens even if they hold it overseas, but only if they know about the wealth. Tax avoidance and evasion could be so high as to cut the balls off the wealth tax. Although tax avoidance is an inherent issue, a big part of it is a policy choice. Policy and enforcement have to make avoidance and evasion harder, and it must be punished when illegal. One important policy is third-party reporting. Taxpayers and the IRS should receive all the information they need for a wealth tax from financial institutions. This reporting should cover as many assets and debts as possible. A wealth tax will need clear rules on how different wealth stashes are taxed, including trusts and charities. Although renouncing U.S. citizenship to avoid taxes is rare, it has happened and could be more frequent if there is a large yearly tax on wealth or gains. There's reasonable hope that a U.S. wealth tax could be much better enforced than the European ones, but how well enforcement would work is disagreed upon by experts. It may be difficult to evade taxes on a yearly tax compared to a one-time tax at death. To do so yearly would require plausible, false, or misleading reports on a yearly basis, rather than plan to do it just one time. Although, the bureaucracy can also more focus if each person only has one chance to evade the tax. Studies on tax-induced migration suggest that international migration in response to wealth taxes are small compared to the potential revenue. Studies find stronger evidence for within-country migration to avoid taxes. The U.S. estate tax 
takes in about 40% of the revenue that wealth tax advocates estimate it would. Likewise, it's possible that the amount the wealth tax is predicted to take in will be half as much. Instead of $3.75 trillion over a decade, it has been estimated to instead only take in $1.875 trillion. Many of the policies needed to limit avoidance of a wealth tax are the same ones needed for estate or accrual taxes. In order to potentially put a valuation on all assets every year, and in order to prevent wealth flight, a large and expert bureaucracy will be needed. We not only will need more information on citizens and wealth in the U.S., but will need this information from other countries where wealth may reside. Compared to an accrual tax, a threshold where the tax applies will be easier to implement in a wealth tax. We just need to look at total current wealth rather than lifetime gains. Compliance costs are borne by the government, third parties, and the taxpayer. A high exemption would reduce administration challenges because the IRS could focus on the relatively few wealthy households, rather than monitoring every household. Although I would think some monitoring would have to be done on everyone to know when people meet the threshold. Because valuations are needed every year, there's a low yield to administrative cost rate. A wealth tax will change incentives that could affect economic activity. Assuming a wealth tax is in addition to the current realized capital gains income tax, there would still be a lock-in effect to avoid paying this income tax. A wealth tax takes a flat percentage of wealth no matter how well investments do. An accrual tax takes more wealth when an investment does better and less when an investment does poorly. Essentially, a capital gains tax is the government sharing investment risk with the taxpayer. One advantage a wealth tax has over an accrual tax is an accrual tax taxes successful investment by taxing the high returns on those successful investments, while a wealth tax just taxes wealth in general, whether or not it is invested well. An accrual tax, therefore, may disincentivize high returns investment compared to a wealth tax. A wealth tax also then helps redistribute wealth from unproductive wealthy people to productive wealthy people by not taxing more productive wealth more, which is what a mark-to-market tax does. However, a wealth tax would tax a wealthy saver more than a wealthy spendthrift, so that would mean less incentive to save rather than spend. There's uncertainty on what effects on the economy a wealth tax will have. It could disincentivize investment, which would be bad for the economy. If the revenue is used well, it could benefit the economy. A wealth tax could reduce the amount of capital available for entrepreneurial activities. However, often wealth is used to secure markets and defeat competition and new innovation. So, a wealth tax could also help entrepreneurialism by lowering the wealth available to limit competition. Because a wealth tax will reduce the end rewards of founding and growing a very successful business, This may change the risk calculus of potential entrepreneurs and discourage businesses from even forming. Ideally, people in similar financial situations will be taxed similarly. A wealth tax doesn't always do this. Think of two individuals, one just above the wealth tax threshold and one just below it. They both have an income. They each pay a high income tax. Then, the person just above the wealth tax pays taxes on that money a second time in the form of the wealth tax. The one just below does not. Such a situation 
is unfair and gives incentives to game the system. We should expect bunching right at the exemption level, which is an economic distortion. Studies examining wealth taxes from around the world show a mix of responses including real behavioral changes, avoidance, and evasion, but which predominate depend on policy design, contextual factors, and the study's methodological differences. Wealth taxes tend to have a stronger effect on the avoidance and evasion of taxes rather than on actual savings, although a better wealth tax that makes avoidance and evasion harder may induce less saving and less productive behavior. Some evidence suggests that wealth and income taxes don't affect how investors value investments. Studies on the Norwegian wealth tax find that liquidity constraints did not clearly excessively burden typical entrepreneurs. The evidence also failed to show unambiguous harmful effects in the areas of investment and employment. However, the low rate of Norway's wealth tax may make these studies' results not apply to higher rates. A study found that a wealth tax was associated with increased savings, and this increased savings was funded by increased labor. Other evidence tends to show little savings differences based on wealth taxes, but a fair amount of avoidance and evasion. A wealth tax would not precisely go after the wealthy avoiding capital gains taxes and would be unfair to those that sell assets. Those that sell assets would have to pay the capital gains tax and the wealth tax, while people that never sell would pay the same wealth tax but avoid the capital gains tax. In 1990, 12 OECD countries had a wealth tax. In 2019, only 4 to 6 did, the exact number depending on what you count as a wealth tax. Reasons for repeal include too much avoidance and evasion, too narrow of tax bases, low exemptions, and efficiency costs. However, not all wealth tax avoidance tactics would work in the U.S. Unlike other countries that had a wealth tax, the U.S. doesn't just tax citizens living in-country, but taxes them no matter where they are. An American would have to give up U.S. citizenship to avoid wealth taxes, and may still have to pay a heavy exit tax if that's how the wealth tax was implemented. The repealed European wealth taxes have a variety of exemptions for different kinds of assets. If a U.S. wealth tax didn't have these, there would be much less avoidance issues. However, the political process may impose such exemptions on the tax. In Europe, offshore evasion was a real problem. So was tax competition where people would move to other European countries that didn't have a wealth tax. Some of these wealth taxes had low thresholds, which created liquidity challenges for some moderately wealthy people. Many of the European wealth taxes were designed in the early 20th century and had not adapted to deal with the more recent opposition to wealth taxes. They used self-assessments, but needed to use systematic information reporting. These problems led to reforms that actually made wealth taxes even weaker. Reforms like exemptions of certain asset classes and limiting taxes according to reported income. Eventually, this led to repeal. These weaknesses can be overcome. Today, cross-border information exchange is much better, and this will help keep track of moving wealth. Avoidance will be harder if the wealth tax has a higher exemption threshold and treats all assets equally. With modern information technology, the government can gather household data and pre-populate wealth tax returns, which should limit evasion. So, we can do a much better wealth tax than the Europeans did when they originally developed theirs. A wealth tax may politically be better able to avoid exemptions because the U.S. doesn't have a current wealth tax. The other forms of taxes already have exemptions and winners who would fight politically 
to keep their tax carve-outs. The wealth tax could start fresh. Much tax avoidance and evasion can be reduced by good enforcement. The keys are comprehensive data collection, sanctions on both the countries and financial intermediaries that supply tax evasion services, and enough resources for auditing. A good wealth tax needs a broad base to treat all asset types equally, extensive third-party reporting, exit charges, robust enforcement, and the tax levied at the household level. The U.S. took a good step with the 2010 Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act that requires all foreign financial institutions to report U.S. customers to the IRS. Foreign financial institutions face penalties if they do not report accounts of U.S. residents. Digitalization increases administration's access to data, their ability to handle lots of data, and gives better access to third-party information, which will help future wealth taxes. Offshore tax evasion is done through sophisticated financial institutions that keep records and names. If governments can get this information, they can connect it to tax data. The best way to enforce taxes overseas is with the cooperation of foreign governments and having them share the information they get from their financial institutions. A U.S. wealth tax may be better than the European ones due to proposed high exemption levels, rate schedule, base broadness, and enforcement provisions. While these differences are true and important, the differences also mean we can't learn as much from experience. To try a wealth tax relying on new provisions that should work in theory will be an experiment. Do we really want to make a guinea pig out of the U.S. tax system? Many of these enforcement capabilities will be needed for mark-to-market or inheritance taxes, so these are general needs for a healthy U.S. tax system. One real danger of a wealth tax is, once it's in place and it works to draw revenue from wealth, future governments may underestimate the negative consequences of a higher tax rate and therefore raise the wealth tax too high with devastating consequences for the economy. Many of the downsides of a wealth tax grow when the rate is too high. I can imagine a reasonable president and Congress setting a reasonable low wealth tax rate with modest negative effects, but then a left-wing fervor takes over and a president and Congress down the line uses the already-in-place wealth tax to overtax the wealthy. The amount of avoidance and evasion will explode if the wealth tax rate is set too high so will the decrease in investment as people don't find it worthwhile to invest. While this is a danger for all taxes, capital gains and estate taxes already exist. The wealth tax will create a new avenue for the left wing to overtax, and it also happens to be a favorite tax of the left, so it may be the tax they'd most love to misuse. If evasion and avoidance are high enough, taxing capital gains or wealth too much could actually cause revenue to fall. In the U.S. context, a wealth tax may be declared unconstitutional because it could be considered a direct tax that must be apportioned among the states based on population. A wealth tax would not be apportioned among states based on population. One way to get around the constitutional issue is to treat the wealth tax as a minimum income tax where what is taxed is the presumed income of one's wealth rather than actual reported income. Whether such arguments would fly depend on the Supreme Court. To conclude on the wealth tax, I fear that a wealth tax would produce an opportunity for a future left-wing election victory to easily take an already-in-place tax and hurt the economy by raising the tax too high. 
I also don't like that it so indirectly attacks the problem of the wealthy avoiding taxes on capital gains. Additionally, I'd hate for tons of political capital to be spent to get a wealth tax into law just for the Supreme Court to declare it unconstitutional. Finally, the results of a wealth tax are fairly unpredictable because we've never had one in the United States, and European ones haven't been enforced as well as we'd want to enforce an American one. Such a yearly tax produces incentives to avoid the tax, evade the tax, invest less, and not start business ventures. It's hard to say how economic actors would respond, but the downside risk scares me. Although bureaucratic valuation and liquidity issues are problems, I believe they can be imperfectly solved. Nevertheless, when you add these issues to the others that concern me, I don't think a wealth tax is the best idea. We could use carryover basis rather than stepped up basis. This would mean rather than heirs not having to pay tax on any gains made during the previous owner's lifetime, those gains would still be taxed when the assets were sold. This would limit lock-in because people would know that their heirs would still have to pay taxes if the asset is sold. However, lock-in would still be pretty strong because the money would still be able to compound tax-free, and the heirs may never need to sell the assets. In 2020, the Joint Committee on Taxation and the CBO estimated carryover raising between 105 and 110 billion over 10 years. The historical justification for the carryover basis was difficulty knowing what the original cost basis was. That is less of a problem now, but still an issue. For example, what if someone inherited their father's dental practice? Was the original investment tracked? What about all the money spent on improvements? If not, it will be hard to determine the cost basis. Even stocks bought years ago may have their original cost basis lost to time. One solution is to have a default basis, like 10% of the sale price. This default would apply unless the actual basis can be shown. In 2010, estates of the deceased could choose between an estate tax or a carryover basis. Department of Treasury Research said that 60% of estates chose the carryover basis. The larger the estate size, the more chose carryover basis over the estate tax. This suggests that people were able to find a basis and the difficulty in finding one may not be a sufficient issue to oppose carryover basis. Ending stepped-up basis is fine, but will have no impact if we go with mark-to-market taxation or treating death as a realization event. It still allows capital to compound tax-free and never triggers if assets are not sold. So stepped up only does a limited job at making the wealthy pay their fair share on income. Another option is to tax the wealthy when they die. I'll be talking about two categories of taxes here. One is treating death as a realizing event which should be thought of as part of the capital gains income tax. People are able to avoid taxes by not selling their assets, so we have them pay what's owed at death. This is an income tax on capital gains. The other is an inheritance or estate tax, which is really taxing the income that a wealthy person's death produces for the heirs. With treating death as a realization event, when someone dies, all the unrealized gains of their assets are taxed for their capital gains. 
This is not an estate tax. It is a tax on the normal capital gains that the person still has not paid. This would be done before accounting for an estate tax. First, the death triggers the payment of the capital gains tax. That tax is paid. Then the remaining estate is taxed with an estate tax. Compared to carryover basis, taxing gains at death limits the opportunities to shelter the money, raises more revenue, and reduces lock-in. With carryover basis, lock-in is greater because heirs can delay taxation by not selling assets right away or by not selling them at all. An estate-slash-inheritance tax could be done instead of death as a realizing event or in addition. With the estate or inheritance tax, we have a new income for whomever inherits the money. Rather than having to evaluate every estate every year, we only have to do it once per lifetime. An estate tax is already established, so we just need to expand upon what's already built. For this to work sufficiently, loopholes must be clamped down on, and new holes must be actively closed. Currently, inherited income is not included in income and payroll taxes, so people inherit lots of money and don't pay income tax on it. As far as the current estate tax goes, it's too easy to avoid paying much of the tax. Implementing a tangible estate or inheritance tax will make it so inherited income is taxed more like regular labor income. The government would need money even if it was a small libertarian government. Every dollar not taken from wealthy estates must be taken from elsewhere in the form of taxes, debt, or slash and inflation. Should we take more from the working poor who need every penny to feed themselves? Should we take more from the lower middle class saving for retirement and basic luxuries? Or should we take more from those extremely lucky individuals who are due to inherit millions and millions of dollars? Obviously, the right thing to do is to take more from the wealthy heirs than from workers. Generally, such proposals would not apply the tax when assets are transferred to a spouse, but the original basis would be maintained. Like other taxes discussed, inheritance, estate, and realization at death taxes would have a high exemption so that they only affect the wealthy. Batchelder and Kamen used 2016 JCT projections to estimate that taxing gains at death and raising the capital gains rate to 28% would draw $290 billion over 10 years. The current estate tax has a huge $22.8 million exemption as of 2019, and many ways to avoid taxes on money above that. In 2009, the effective rate on inheritances was less than 4% and is even lower as of 2019. We could have people pay income and payroll tax on inheritances. Over 10 years, this could bring in $340 billion with a $2.5 million exemption, or $917 billion with a $1 million exemption. Liquidity should generally be less of an issue for these taxes because one just needs to sell part of the estate in order to pay the tax. However, when what is inherited is mostly a residence, a small business, or a farm, then it doesn't make sense to sell the family home or business just to pay a tax. In these cases, the tax can be paid over time. Although these problems are presented as a death knell for the estate tax, the common sense solution is just to have these taxes paid over time. Also, such taxes only apply to very wealthy estates 
so most small businesses will not be worth enough to need to pay such a tax. If they are worth so much to be past the threshold, then they aren't really a small business and will have the wherewithal to finance the taxes. Some propose not taxing such assets at all, but this would create incentives to dress up assets as these types in order to avoid taxes. This would reduce revenue and distort the economy. Another way to ease the payment of these taxes is for life insurance to cover it. These taxes require putting a valuation on all assets, which is never easy and will require bureaucracy. However, it only has to be done once in someone's life, which is a lot less work than doing it every year, like in mark-to-market or wealth tax. And even though the current estate tax has holes, it still requires this valuation to be done. So we're doing it already. As with other taxes, we should consider how debt taxes change the incentives for economic actors. Those working for the purpose of giving more money to their heirs may have the incentive to work less if there is an inheritance tax because less of their labor-reduced money will make it to their children. However, they also may want to work more to make up for the taxes. The heirs have an incentive to work more because they receive smaller inheritances. This may improve government revenue and grow the economy. For those who are not saving for their heirs, inheritance taxes will have little to no distortions on their behavior because their saving goals are unrelated to what happens to their money after death. The current body of scientific literature says that wealth transfer tax rates don't much affect how much the affluent accumulate in life. People save for reasons other than just giving their heirs money, like the love of being wealthy, prestige and power, or retirement needs. Enjoying being wealthy compared to others appears to be the strongest motivation. Life cycle saving is the second largest motivation. And while saving for heirs is a motivation, it is small enough that high wealth transfer tax rates don't change saving behavior much. So, the extent that inheritance taxes distort the economy is limited. Evidence also finds that heirs work and save more when wealth transfer taxes are higher. This is good for the economy. Wealth transfer taxes can also improve business productivity because this means less businesses run by heirs. Businesses run by heirs perform worse on average due to nepotism preventing the best managers from managing the company. Although treating death as a realization event is a capital gains tax and to some extent discourages productive investment, it does so less than an accrual tax because the money is only lost at death. Also, it doesn't take money from the productive entrepreneur because the productive entrepreneur is dead. So, taking capital gains at death rather than during life limits the extent that capital gains taxes weaken productivity. One question is whether we can greatly reduce loopholes so that the estate tax is effective. While an estate tax will never be without holes, we can certainly do better than we're doing now. As with the other types of taxes, when not all assets are treated the same, people will move their investments into areas that are taxed less, or make their investments look like these types of assets. The Spanish wealth tax exempted some types of closely held businesses. The share of stock that was exempted quickly expanded from 15% to 77%. Estate taxes need to tax all assets equally. 
One could renounce citizenship to avoid death taxes, but it seems that people would be less likely to do so for a tax that occurs once after death rather than for taxes that occur yearly on accrued gains or wealth. Also, an exit tax could be applied. Currently, the state tax and gift tax exemptions are $11.7 million, $23.4 million for a married couple. This is too high. Billionaires pay millions to expert professionals in order to hide billions from taxes. They have an army of tax warriors whom fight to build inheritance dynasties. Different types of trusts are used to avoid the estate tax. We need to make trusts taxable. There are a few different ways to do it, but I won't get into that today. Owners of businesses can set up family limited partnerships where they make an heir a limited partner. Because the partners own a portion of the assets, the size of one's estate will be smaller and less will be taxable. Avoidance strategies can make transferred assets look smaller during the transfer so that people pay less taxes on these apparently smaller assets, even though this is smoke and mirrors and the assets are still worth their larger amount. Right now, there are a few different types of wealth transfers that are taxed. The system has too many holes and is not efficient at raising revenue. All of these problems can be greatly improved. Exemptions can be lowered. All inherited wealth should be taxed no matter where it comes from, including from trusts. With an actual focus on closing loopholes and making taxes at death an important revenue driver, the wealthy can pay their fair share by way of such taxes. Would an inheritance tax be double taxation? Didn't the wealthy person already pay taxes when they made the money? So the heir is being double taxed? No, because the heir is a separate person. It is a new income. Money is constantly flowing from person to person to business to person, and each time this is an income that should be taxed in an income tax system. Receiving an inheritance is a new income and should be taxed, at least above a certain threshold. Although I've been speaking of them interchangeably, an inheritance tax is different than an estate tax. The focus of an estate tax is taxing the total wealth of the deceased. The focus of an inheritance tax is on taxing what any heirs receive. It may be harder to avoid inheritance taxes because it doesn't matter in what tricky way the estate is set up. If the heir receives it, there is a tax. Like the estate tax, inheritance taxes are only set to apply to lifetime gifts and bequeaths above a certain threshold. We could get rid of estate, gift, and generation skipping transfer taxes and instead tax inheritances using the income and payroll taxes. The focus of the tax wouldn't be the amount transferred, but the amount received. So, if a taxpayer inherits more than a threshold, say $2.5 million over the course of their life from any combination of sources, they will have to pay income and payroll taxes on gifts and bequests they received after the threshold is met. Inheritances could be spread out over the current year and the previous four years to limit the extent that inheritances push people into higher tax brackets. The inheritance tax would not use net operating losses, so heirs couldn't get lower rates by concentrating business losses on years they get inheritances. Heirs would also get to ignore 15000 a year in gifts and bequests, so these would not count toward the lifetime threshold. This way, most gifts would not have to be reported. 
gifts to spouses and charities, gifts for education, medical expenses, and support expenses for minors would be tax-exempt like they are now. Taxing an estate is okay if there is no inheritance tax, but because the focus of our system is taxing income, it makes much more sense to have an inheritance tax instead of an estate tax. Such a tax would fit more smoothly into our income tax system and would be harder to avoid. To conclude on death taxes, I believe the ideal form of death taxes are both a death as a realization event tax and an inheritance tax. The realization tax is simply the capital gains income tax. It makes no sense for people to escape income taxes by dying. An inheritance is income, and if a janitor cleaning up dirt has to pay taxes on his income, so should someone who inherits a bunch of money. Without thinking about it properly, it may seem unfair to tax an estate twice, but we must remember that we aren't really taxing an estate. We are first taking the capital gains taxes that the person avoided paying throughout their life, then taxing the inheritance income of the heirs. Even an estate tax is really taxing the inheritance income of the heirs, just in a kooky way. There are several other loopholes that people use to avoid taxes, and they need to be closed. Using like-kind exchanges, investors in real estate can defer tax on property's value gain by buying a similar property. Investors can donate assets to charity to avoid capital gains tax, but they also get to deduct the charity donation from their ordinary income. Opportunity zones can be used as capital gains tax shelters even if the investments don't create jobs or community benefits. The evidence thus far concludes that opportunity zones don't really increase job postings, so they're basically just a capital gains tax shelter. The super wealthy are able to use IRAs designed to help the middle class save a retirement to shelter millions and billions of dollars from taxes. People can time gains and losses to avoid paying taxes. The timing also creates distortions on otherwise preferred asset allocations. Many well-off people are able to use a variety of legal mechanisms to characterize what is essentially labor income as capital or business income. This can allow them to pay a lower tax rate and never pay the capital gains tax if they never sell their assets. Arguably, the work involved in building a successful company or in picking high-performing assets is labor and should be taxed at labor rates. But when the rewards are in the form of assets, they're only taxed at the lower capital gains rate and only when sold. Another method to make the wealthy pay more of their fair share is to focus on improving tax compliance, rationalize corporate taxes earned domestically and abroad, remove preferential treatment of capital gains, and close loopholes. In 2020, this was estimated to bring in $4 trillion of revenue over a decade. Arguably, such an approach would be cheaper in political capital than the more major changes. From 2011 through 2013, the IRS estimated that it failed to get $380 billion in taxes per year. It was estimated that in 2020, the IRS would fail to get $630 billion in taxes. Investing in compliance to make people and companies pay their owed taxes would be a huge boon and the right thing to do. Because it is the wealthy who don't pay taxes in such a way, investing in enforcement is a progressive tax policy. As of 2020, IRS resources were at historic lows. From 2010 to 2020, the IRS budget declined 15%. 
the likelihood of a return being audited has dropped by 50% in a decade. In 2010, the share of millionaires audited was 12%. As of 2020, it was 3%. The IRS needs appropriate examination resources, technology infrastructure, and more cross-party reporting. Such improvements are also needed for the effectiveness of the more major tax reforms. The 2022 Inflation Reduction Act is a step in the right direction. It is expected to increase net revenue by $124 billion over 10 years through tougher IRS enforcement focused on more and tougher audits of wealthy people. So what the hell should we do? What's clear is that the wealthy are cheating the country by not paying taxes on capital gain income. The income is needed to fund the government and for basic fairness. A mark-to-market tax, wealth tax, and death taxes are all doable and are more resilient than their most strident critics claim. But no option comes without downsides. The goal is to choose the system that best fixes the problem for the least cost. A mark-to-market tax directly targets the problem. But yearly, liquidity, valuation, tracking, auditing, and bureaucratic complications are too much. Combine this with incentives for people to hide their wealth from annual takings, and a mark-to-market tax is far from ideal. A wealth tax opens a whole can of worms and too indirectly targets the problem. While no option is perfect, treating death as a realization event is the best choice to make sure the wealthy pay their fair share of income taxes. By only taxing the unrealized gains at death, we limit the incentives for people to avoid and evade the taxes. It's one thing to lose money every year in the form of a wealth or accrual tax. It's another to never lose the money in one's lifetime. One is less likely to put as much effort into avoiding and evading when it will never affect one personally. And economic behavior is less affected when it is not a yearly tax that affects one's life. Also, only needing to take the money once can help focus the bureaucracy's efforts. Scientific evidence suggests that death taxes have only limited impacts on how the wealthy accumulate, and even find that heirs work more when there is a heavier tax. Still, people will try to avoid the tax, just not as much as the yearly takes. So, a determined, well-funded, and continual effort to search for tax cheats and close loopholes will be needed. Realization at death limits the lock-in effect, but does not eliminate it. If we decide... The lock-in effect is so distortionary that it must be eliminated, then mark-to-market taxation is the answer. Because realization at death will only apply to those with tons of wealth, paid professionals will be on hand to handle the taxes. Thus, this will not put an undue burden on grieving families, and is a much lower burden than calculating one's tax obligation every year. With death taxes, liquidity issues are mostly solved because the deceased's assets can be sold and payments over time can be allowed for special assets like living homes, businesses, and farms. Valuation can be difficult, but there are plenty of options for how to deal with difficult-to-value assets, and this has to be done anyway for the estate tax. After the realization tax, an inheritance tax should apply to the wealth each heir inherits. For the heirs, this is income and should be taxed similar to labor income. Both taxes should only apply above a certain high threshold, 
So these taxes will be targeted at the wealthy who have more ability to pay and are currently escaping taxes on their incomes. Taxing is an unpleasant subject. In a fantasy world, men would be angels and no government would be needed. But as long as there's a role for government in our societies, then we must find ways to pay for that government. We should do so in as fair a way as possible. Allowing wealthy people to avoid taxes on income while the rest of us pay what's owed from our meager wages and salaries is wrong. It can and should be fixed. I'm Lone Candle. Like me, comment me, love me. Mwah.